Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Coming up on this week's Life Lessons podcast. What we found is that using evolutionary game theory, we can actually prove theorems. And the probability is precisely zero that any sensory system of any organism has ever evolved to see anything about objective reality. My name is Simon Mundy. This is the Life Lessons podcast in which we explore life's bigger questions. Thank you for joining me. Now, before we get to this episode, I've got some exciting news. I am delighted to finally announce that my debut book called Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself, will be out on January the 18th and is now available for pre-order. It's been a real labour of love. And it's published by Bloomsbury and draws on my interviews with the likes of Johnny Wilkinson, Caitlin Jenner, Goldie Sayers, the author of Emotional Intelligence, Daniel Goleman, and philosopher Rupert Spira, to name just a few. And in it, really, I want to challenge the idea that we tend to have about success and where lasting fulfillment, purpose, and peace are to be found. I'm really excited for this to be out there in the world and pre-orders do mean a lot to authors. So if you like the sound of it, you know what to do. I will link to it in the show notes as well as my new YouTube channel, which is full of clips, including from this week's episode. Now, you can't escape the news right now, and a lot of it is just clearly awful. And the world's full of conflict right now. Lots of people are suffering. And we tend not to consider the prevailing view of reality, which is that we are separate beings in a material world. And that view can foster tribalism and a distrust of the other, whoever we deem the other to be. But if we knew that we were actually connected at a fundamental level and that if I hurt you, I'd actually be hurting myself, then wouldn't people behave differently towards each other? Well, that's one of the important messages and takeaways in this conversation with Professor Donald Hoffman, who studies evolution, consciousness and AI, amongst other things. Now, he argues through science and mathematical equations that rather than billions of different separate beings... There is, in fact, one infinitely intelligent being, and we're all avatars of that. He also explains how the chances that we see reality as it actually is, is zero, and that space and time are not fundamentally real. They are like a VR headset that we put on in order to be able to navigate reality. This episode is deep and a bit mind-bending, but to me, subjects like this are what are really important because... Rather than just self-improvement, this is about asking the really big questions about how we evolve collectively, not just as separate individuals. It was an absolute pleasure speaking to Donald, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Donald Hoffman, it's a pleasure to be with you again. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Simon. It's a pleasure again to talk with you as well. Thank you. So just for a bit of context, you and I have had... Uh, or rather, I have had the pleasure of recording a podcast with you already once before. That was for Rupert Spira's channel. And we went pretty deep on 
the nature of reality and space-time and all the things we're going to talk about today. And so it's a, a real blessing for me to be able to revisit these subjects and try and just make them as accessible as possible. There's a lot to cover, Don, and I feel like we should just leap straight in. And the first thing I think to state at the outset is to have a word on science itself. And science is this wonderful thing. It's obviously provided us with so many wonderful tools. It saves lives. It's allowing us to have this conversation right now from many thousands of miles away, which is fabulous. However, there is something about science to point out, which is that science does have its limits because every scientific theory has its assumptions. That's correct. Okay. And we've had various assumptions as human beings before. So for example, we once assumed that the earth was flat and everyone just took that as an absolute given. And then obviously over time that got challenged and dispensed with. And now people who hold that view are generally seen as um, a little bit away with the fairies. So a couple of assumptions that now exist. One is that we see reality as it is. And assumption number two is that the brain creates conscious experiences, the taste of tea, the feeling of love. So those are the two pretty fundamental assumptions that exist in the way people view the world now. Is that also fair? Yeah, I think that's sort of the default assumption that we're built with, that um, we see reality pretty much as it is. I see the moon, that's because the moon is there. I see it, an apple, it's because an apple really is there. If I see a brain, that's because a brain really is there, and and uh, you know brains are there for something, and they they cause our behaviors and they cause our experiences. I think that's the standard, the standard view, and it it, it seems you know how could you question it? <laughs> and most people don't dwell on these things much. This isn't a sort of normal conversation. Just as I imagine, back in the day, people didn't really sort of sit around the campfire and talk about whether or not the Earth was flat. It was just a given. People, it was just a, a widespread belief that people had, and there was no reason to question it. Obviously, it had implications, for example, for people's ability to do long-haul travel, but beyond that, it didn't really you know, impact people greatly. Now, the same is true of these two assumptions that we've mentioned here, aren't they? It is that people may not talk about them, but the implications of holding these beliefs, whether people are even aware that they hold these beliefs or not, the implications there are actually far more profound and deeper than the whole flat earth belief as well. I would agree. They, I would agree that most people take these assumptions for granted. They, and to even bring them up as questionable might cause people to raise their eyebrows. It's even kooky to, to even wonder about these things. But once you start to push on them a little bit, you realize there's more to understand here. Okay, so we'll come back to the brain creates conscious experiences known as the hard problem of consciousness. The fact that this big lump of tofu or jelly creates all these wonderful things like taste and love and sight and stuff. We'll come back to that, but let's start with seeing reality as it is and go back to, was it 1986 when you had your eureka moment when you were forced to sit down and realize that perhaps things weren't all as they seemed? That's right. In 1986, when when science sort of forced me to to sit down and and reconsider perception, reality, connection, absolutely, and it was it was quite a shock. So, can you just paint a bit of a picture about what happened there? 
And how much of a eureka moment was it? Well, as a graduate student at MIT, I'd been working on visual perception and specific problems and how do we see in 3D, how do we see motion and so forth. And I also began to work on a general theory of perception, a mathematical model of perception. By 1986 at UC Irvine, I'd moved to UC Irvine and was working with Bruce Bennett and Chetan Prakash, developing this mathematical model further. And it had gotten so far that we could begin to ask questions like this. And at, at one point, when I was discussing with Bruce Bennett the implications of this, it, it, it really hit me. Wow, this theory is really telling us that reality may be utterly constructed. The, the perceptual reality, the things that I see that I took to be objective reality may just be a subjective reality, more like a, like a user interface and not, not the truth. And that was, that was such a shock that I actually had to sit down and I, I had to take it seriously because I'd been working with the team to develop this mathematics. And so I was listening to what my own theory was saying. So it was, a, it was not like somebody else's theory. It was my theory that was slapping me in the face. So I had to sit down and, and pay attention. <laughs> and how long did it sort of take for you to internalize it and, and really accept this is far more likely to be true than what I previously believed? Was it a gradual thing or was it a sudden thing? Uh, I'm still dealing with it today. Uh, I'm, like everybody else, when I actually look at my own knee-jerk emotional reactions, they're all against this theory. Everything inside me emotionally is against it. And, and so, so when, when people hear these ideas and say that's nonsense, I completely understand. I mean, it's just, it, it, but for me, uh, I have to look at my emotions and they are what they are. That's the way you know, our, my emotions work. But then when I actually start doing my mathematical theories, it, there's this other realm. So I, I, it's a little bit of a divide. Intellectually, this becomes very, very clear, but the emotions have yet to catch up. I think they've caught up a little bit, but, but for me, it's still a shock to think that I'm not seeing reality. Now, you gave this fantastic TED Talk, Don, and I watched it again in preparation for our chat. And two things struck me. First of all, how you could hear an absolute pin drop in the audience. It was so captivating. Were you conscious of that, that how, how grabbed people were by this, by what you were suggesting? I, I wasn't. I, I, um, when you give a TED Talk, you have 15 minutes that you have to, it was eight, 15 or 18 minutes, whatever it was. I had to memorize the entire talk. You, you, there were no notes. Yeah. And, and so I was really focused not so much on the audience, but on making sure I didn't forget my lines. So it was, it was, it was, the TED Talks are really tough. I mean, yeah. it would be nice to have a teleprompter to read it, but, but I understand why, you know, Chris, Chris doesn't let us do that. I mean, he, he really wants you to, to be there and present yeah. with the audience. But so, so um, I wasn't aware. Only when I look back at it, do I, could I see, you know, want to see the video myself? Yeah. Like people are so dialed in and, during the talk, you give this lovely explanation because when it comes to seeing reality as it is, you talk about the difference between fitness and accuracy. So do we see things as they are or see things in order to survive? And you gave this lovely um, way to understand it by talking about the jewel beetle, which was nearly drove to extinction, extinction by Aussie beer swillers. So just very quickly, uh, Don, would you mind just explaining this? Because I do think it puts a bit of meat on the bones. Right. So the jewel beetle is quite interesting. It's, it's, it's 
color is it's dimpled, glossy, and brown, and, and the males fly, and the females are flightless. But the males fly around looking for females, and when they find a, an eligible female, they alight and mate. And they've been doing this for who knows how many thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. So you, you'd figure that that ju- male jewel beetles know what a female is. I mean, they found them successfully. But it, but as you mentioned, there are these beer bottles that uh, some men, Australian men, um, would toss out into the outback. And and these beer bottles, they, they call them stubbies, um, were dimpled, glossy, and just the right shade of brown to trick the visual systems of these these jewel beetles. And so the males would just swarm all over these bottles and in, in tr- trying to mate. And even though they were on the bottles and nothing was happening, they persisted in trying to mate. And so what, what, what this indicates is, and they weren't able to recover. That's the key thing, right? It's not like, like I got in the bottle, oh, I made a mistake and they fly away. No, no, they stay on the bottle. They stay on the bottle. And, and it actually was danger to the extinction of the species. So they had to, you know, to do something about this. So, so what's remarkable is here's a species that successfully made it for who knows how many thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. And one little change in the environment, a little bottle could make them go extinct. So what, what seems to be shown by this is that what they evolved was not a genuine perception of what females are. They just had some tricks and hacks. They, their perceptual systems evolved with these simple tricks and haps, hacks. A female is anything dimpled, glossy, and brown. The bigger, the better, because these bottles were, 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 were bigger. So, but what's, what's in, and it makes sense evolutionarily because every calorie that you spend on perception is a calorie you have to go out and eat something or kill something and eat it. It costs time and energy to do complicated perceptual processing. So there are selection pressures to do things as cheaply as you possibly can that will get the job done. But don't do anything that you don't have to do. And so for the the jewel beetle, apparently dimpled, glossy, and brown, but the bigger the better, that was all you really needed to do. That's all that's all the insight they had into females. And, and maybe the females would agree they don't have, these males don't have much insight into us. Um, <laughs> it's just, and so, but that seems to be um, ubiquitous in evolution. There are selection pressures to do things on the cheap, quickly and cheaply. And so that's sort of, sort of what drove our, our initial study of evolution by natural selection. So you talk about doing things on the cheap and, you know, saving calories and making things as easy as possible, which makes total sense. But that's not the basis of how you arrived at the conclusion that we don't see reality as it is. We see reality uh, in order to survive. There's literally a mathematically precise formula that actually illustrates this as well. Yes. So I I gave sort of the intuition just now about it, but, but there's evolution by natural selection is a mathematical theory. It's, we have what's called evolutionary game theory. And so my colleagues, many, so it's not just me, I'm not a mathematician. So I've worked with mathematicians who, so hats off to them, Bruce Bennett, Chaitan Prakash, um, Manish Singh and, and, and and others um, who are are far more sophisticated than me in mathematics. Um, And what we found is that using evolutionary game theory, um, we can actually prove theorems, and the probability is precisely zero that any sensory system of any organism has ever evolved to see anything 
about objective reality as it is. Now, I should say, it's not that that means that, you know, anything goes in perception, right? If, for example, someone just emailed me today saying, does that mean that there, these are, that just so, that evolution has given us just so stories, right? Just so stories about reality. No, no, no. They're not just so stories. They're useful stories. They're useful in the same way that your user interface on your desktop is a useful guide to the complicated circuits and software inside your laptop or, or whatever. If you had a just so story for your desktop interface, you wouldn't get anything done. So it's not just so the, there are important connections, but, but clearly what you see in your desktop in no way resembles the circuits and software and electronics inside your, 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 your laptop, right? It doesn't resemble it whatsoever. It's a useful guide. It's not arbitrary, but it doesn't resemble it. And that's sort of what evolution did. It's given us space and time and physical objects as a useful interface. And, and so there are systematic connections between that interface and properties of objective reality. That's why it's useful. So there are systematic connections. It's not a just-so story. And yet, nothing inside space and time that, as we perceive it in any way resembles the objective reality in any more than the pixels on your desktop resemble the circuits and software inside your computer. And I think your interface comparison is, it's such a, a wonderful uh, example. It's it was such a clever thing to, to use as a comparison because obviously, you know, we live in a world of staring at screens these days, right? And so whenever I've tried to talk about this thing, it, it's the first sort of example I give. Think of it in terms of your desktop and you can suddenly see people's brains go, oh, right, okay, yeah, I see. So can you just ex explain this analogy in very simple terms? Maybe I'll just kick things off because um, I've been writing some stuff on my computer currently. I've obviously got a, a big, well, loads of Word documents haphazardly strewn all over my, all over my desktop interface. And if I was to drag it in the bin that would be a problem but that doesn't mean that there's either a bin there or a book there it's all a, a representation of a far deeper and far more complex process and that can just be scaled up that's exactly right so if you're if you're writing a, a book for example or some some paper and you see the icon for that paper or that book on your desktop say it's blue and rectangular and in the upper left corner of your screen it doesn't mean that the file itself in your computer is blue and rectangular and in the upper left corner of your computer. I mean, anybody who thought that just, I mean, I think no one is so naive as to think that, but, but if you thought that it, it would be a complete misunderstanding of the nature of that interface. It, it, it's a useful guide to your computer, right? If you double click on that blue icon, you can open up your book and start working on it. And if you drag it to the trash can, you will lose your book. So you, you know, so there are consequences. So, so you, you, you can't just say, oh, oh, you don't see reality as it is. That means you can do whatever you want. Is that what you're saying? No, no, I'm not saying that at all. If, if you see a snake, don't pick it up. If you see a cliff, don't jump off. It's a useful, useful interface. It's just that none of it resembles objective reality. And yeah. but I, so. So the same thing is true of that blue icon. And so we have to take it seriously, but not literally. And that's yeah. the key distinction. We have to, evolution shaped us with sensory perceptions that were shaping, that were shaped to keep us alive. That's their, their that from an evolutionary point of view, the goal of perception is to guide adaptive behavior. 
In other words, keep you alive at least long enough to reproduce. Yeah. So you better take your sensory systems seriously. But the logical error is we think, of course, because I have to take it seriously, therefore I must take it literally, right? Some of them might say, well, look, um, if you don't think that hammer is real, if I hit you on the head with it, I mean, you, you'll know that it's real. Well, I'll know that there are serious consequences for using that, for misusing the, the, the hammer. Yeah, there are serious consequences. But that doesn't mean that the hammer is literally uh, real in that form. It, it, it does mean that there is some other deeper reality that I don't want to interact with that way as expressed by that hammer. Um, yeah. Just like, again, as you mentioned, the, the um, trash can icon, that's, a, that's a, something you want to interact with very, very carefully on your desktop. Don't drag stuff there willy-nilly. <laughs> yeah. And if we saw the Word document and the bin as they actually are on the computer, we'd never get anything done. And so it makes sense, therefore, that in terms of reality, the same is true. You know, if we saw things as they were, we would be completely stuck and unable to, to function. And actually, again, you've proved that to be true. That's right. I mean, ultimately, when you drag your your icon to the trash can and delete the file, what's going on are, are millions of bits inside your computer are being toggled in a particular special pattern. Now, if you had to actually toggle those thousands or millions of bits in the, exactly the right pattern to do it, I mean, you could do it, but you know, instead of having it be such a simple thing, I just drag my file to the trash can. And it might take you several days or, or years to, to yeah. delete your file. And, and so that's why, again, evolution, in some sense, it keeps us alive because it hides the truth. It is too, the truth is too complicated. In my own view, frankly, it's infinitely complicated, literally yeah. infinitely complicated. So that there, there is no way in, in, in some finite quote, quote unquote time to, to, to deal with it. So, so shortcuts are absolutely necessary. And am I right in saying, so your mathematical equation again showed that the more likely you were to see things as they are, the more you're going to go out of existence? Yes. And, and I should maybe just give a little feel f for that and, and, and an objection that, that, that the two objections that are raised. So, so the, the feel for it is that um, in evolution, there are these things called fitness payoffs. That those are they sort of govern whether you're going to what what happens if if I eat for example um, a hamburger if I'm not a vegetarian th th there could be good fitness payoffs for me I get you know energy and protein and so forth but if I eat poison ivy well that's not so good for my fitness so so these fitness payoffs describe for each organism in each action and each state of that organism what what payoffs you might get in terms of the probability of um, you know surviving long enough to reproduce, basically. And what you can do is show that these fitness payoffs themselves have no information about, that they do not convey information about objective reality truth. The, the probability that, that they will give you, um, that these functions themselves preserve information about the structure of objective reality. So I'll be very precise. The probability that a fitness payoff which is a, some kind of function, right? It says whatever the state of the world and the organism, the action and so forth, these are the fitness payoffs you'll get. That's the function, the, the payoffs that you'll get. So it's a function from the world, state and action into the payoffs that you get. 
question is, will that fit, will that function actually preserve information about the structure of the world, the truth of the world? Technically, we call that, is it a homomorphism of the structures of the world? But, but just does it preserve the structure? And what you can do is prove that in certain cases, absolutely it could. But what is the probability? Precisely zero. The probability in the limit is precisely zero. So yes, it could happen, but um, I would bet the farm that, <laughs> that it's not going to happen. The probability is precise. So, so in other words, so the, the theorem is not that it couldn't possibly happen. The, the theorem is the probability is one that it won't happen. Yeah. Okay. Or probability zero that it will happen, that we'll see reality as it is. So as a betting man, you, you can bet safely that we don't see the truth at all. Okay. Which is interesting because I'm reminded of my chat with Bernardo Castrop and I asked him this and I said, you know, how sure are you that we don't see reality as it is? And he said, oh, a hundred percent sure. And it sounds like you're on the same page. Although, as you had said earlier, you have <laughs> uh, feelings and emotions that scream in opposition to it. So are you a hundred percent or have your emotions brought you down a tiny bit? Well, well what, as a scientist, what I'll say is this. The theory of evolution by natural selection predicts that it's 100% that we don't see reality as it is. Now, my attitude about it, that theory is it's the best theory that science has so far. But my attitude about it also is that it's not the final word, that it's the glory of science to progress and that we will get new theories. But right now we have no, no deeper theory. So as a scientist, it's my responsibility to say our best science right now, namely evolution by natural selection, says very, very clearly the probability is 100% that we don't see reality as it is. And my emotions, of course, can disagree, and they may, but my <laughs> mind, that, that's my, my intellectual. Now, of course, I'm thinking about going for, for deeper theories, and we'll see what those deeper theories say. Yeah. But, but as a scientist, right now, this is the... The deep, now, I should make point out an objection that I've gotten. Okay, so two, two objections. W- one is, how can I use the theory of evolution to prove that we don't see reality as it is without contradicting myself? Yes, I saw this. This is actually, the favorite yeah. of philosophers. Yeah. Right. So philosopher, and, and, and by the way, this is, you know, this is not a minor thing. They're, they're publishing papers and journals and there's a PhD thesis on this and so forth from philosophers. So, so philosophers are, are quite into showing that, that I'm just basically so wrong that I'm, I'm refuting myself uh, by self-contradiction. And the argument is basically that, you know, Darwin's theory starts off with talking about organisms in space and time yeah. and resources in space and time. And so, so look, if I'm using evolutionary game theory to, to prove what I'm claiming, either it's true that evolutionary game theory faithfully models what Darwin was talking about, in which case it couldn't possibly say that we don't see animals and resources as objective reality, because that's what Darwin assumes, or it, it doesn't faithfully, the, the mathematics doesn't faithfully model Darwin, in which case my results with that mathematics are irrelevant to evolution. So in any case, I'm wrong, right? So that's, that's, that's the argument. And what it misses is the central theme of science. And that is that scientific theories always start with assumptions. Like in the case of Darwin, um, physical objects in space and time 
pursuing physical resources like, like plants and other animals for food and so forth. Every scientific theory, though, has its limits. It, it, and this is just a, a consequence of something called Gödel's incompleteness. It's Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Anytime you have a, a, a theory with a certain set of assumptions, you may be able to prove an infinite number of things, but there's a bigger infinity of things outside that are true that you can't you can't reach with your theory. That's just the way science works. So the only question, so it's no question that every scientific theory will have its limits. The, the only question is this, is the scientific theory precise enough to give you clues about its own limits? And that's the glory of evolution by natural selection. It is, of course, got limits, and the mathematical statement of the theory can tell you precisely what those limits are. The same thing is true in physics, right? So in, in physics, we have Einstein's theory of relativity and quantum field theory, and these assume that space and time are fundamental. But that again is a, an assumption, and it will have its limits. The only question is, will those scientific theories in physics tell us the limits of that assumption of space and time? And again, to their credit, they do. They will tell you that, yes, our theories start with space and time. That's the assumption of our theory. And of course, our assumption has limits. And in fact, it's false at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and 10 to the minus 43 seconds. Our assumption is no longer viable. So we don't go and say, oh, the physicists are caught in a self-contradiction, those stupid idiots. They, they, they start off with space and time as their fundamental assumption, and then they use their own mathematics to prove that space and time are not fundamental. Those guys are caught in a self-contradiction. We don't say that. No, we say, brilliant. They are so precise in their theories that they can tell you the limits of their theories, and that gives us clues to the next step we have to take as scientists. And that's what I'm doing with evolution. It, we, we find the limits of the concepts that we started with, and that then gives us a hint about the creative leaps we're going to have to take to get our next theory. And that next theory, one constraint on the next theory is you have to get your previous theory as a special case. So whatever new theory we get that beyond space and time, for example, in physics, it has to project back down to space and time physics and give us the physics that we know they're inside space and time. Otherwise, the deeper uh, theory is wrong. So, right. so it's not like we just chuck our old theories. They're yeah. incredible tools. And, right. and they give us hints about what's beyond, but they can't tell us what's beyond. We have to take a creative leap, but the creative leap is then constrained by, the constraint is you better get back your original theory yeah. as a special case. And so okay. when we go beyond evolution by natural selection, whatever new theory we come up with, better give us evolution by natural selection or a generalization of it as as a projection from the deeper theory. Okay. So so that's my my response to to the philosophers who who are saying that you're caught in a self contradiction. No 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 no. This is the way science pulls itself up by its bootstraps. Okay. One theory to the next. So whenever there's a new theory, it has to account for all the theories that have gone before. It has to build on them essentially. That's right. And and and. It has to keep the strong points of those theories and maybe point out to the weaknesses that were in those earlier theories, right? Where they were wrong. Absolutely. Now, we mentioned space-time. 
or you mentioned space time, which is so let, let's dive into that. But again, just to remind, so we're talking about similar to an interface, take it seriously, but not literally. We're wearing, you know, a, a VR headset, essentially, when we don't see things as they are, we see sort of representation of a much deeper reality. And the fundamental aspect of how we see things is time and space. So, for example, I'm here, I can extend my arm out into space, and it's obviously going out into space. And that thing I just said about my arm a second ago, that definitely happened just just back then, back in the past. Um, But what you're saying now as well is that space and time, well, to quote from one of your papers, space time is doomed. I think it was one of your colleagues that came out with that rather chilling line. So, yes, can you just explain in the simplest terms how we know that space and time are essentially illusory? Right. So the first time I've seen that quote is in a paper in 2005 by David Gross, who was a Nobel Prize winner for his work, I think, in, in the strong force and so forth. Um, yeah. And he, he argued, and, and then subsequent uh, arguments I've seen in physics are along the same lines, is that, that space-time, of course, I mean, by the way, what was interesting about David Gross's paper was it was in 2005. It was the 100th anniversary of Einstein's 1905 paper, <laughs> which basically gave us space-time, right? A special theory wow. of relativity. So, so what David Gross was doing was saying 100 years later, thank you, Einstein, space-time was wonderful. You've given us this wonderful tool, and now it's doomed. So first, thank you, Einstein, but now it's time to move on. Space-time is doomed. And and the argument, um, there are several arguments. Uh, by the way, if people want to see a, a real physicist, not not just Hoffman talking about this, I recommend just Googling Nima Arkani Hamed, and you know, space-time is doomed, and, and you can get it straight from a real physicist. But I'll, I will give you a cognitive scientist's um, version of it of what what they say what they'll say is look um quantum theory and special relativity when we put them together make some interesting statements about the nature of space and time and and measurement suppose you want to measure something that's tinier and tinier right you need a more and more powerful microscope to do that and what does that mean you need light with smaller and smaller wavelengths because you need smaller wavelengths to resolve smaller stuff Okay. Well, in a world that just has quantum theory, there's no problem with that. You can, in principle, um, you know, get if you have enough money, you can get you know, machines that can make smaller and smaller wavelengths. But we live in a world in which there's also you know, special and general relativity. And what, what we find is that, well, first, that um, quantum theory tells us that the smaller the wavelengths of light, the higher the energy of the, of the, of the light the higher the energy of the photon, okay? And that's no problem. If you just have quantum theory, that's no problem. You can just, if you have enough money, you can get higher energy. But Einstein tells us that energy and mass are the same thing, E equals mc squared. And his theory of gravity entails that as we put more and more energy into our light, so we get smaller and smaller wavelengths, we're effectively putting more mass into a smaller region of space and at some point, the mass density will be so high that we'll create a black hole. So you destroy the very thing that you're trying to measure. And when does that happen? Roughly at 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and 10 to the minus 43 seconds, the very notion of space-time has 
as David Gross put it in his 2005 paper, no operational meaning. So there's, there's just, there's nothing we could do in, in practical experiments to give meaning to the concept of space and time. It, they, it, all we get are black holes. And if you, if you get frustrated and say, well, I'll pump more energy, I'll try harder, the black hole just gets bigger and bigger. And so that says to me that space-time is just a data structure and frankly, a, a very shallow one. It's, you know, it falls apart at only 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, not 10 to the minus 33 trillion centimeters, just 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. So we have this cheap data structure and, and, and thank you, Einstein, for, for telling us about it and, and giving it. And it's been a great century plus with that, with that data structure. But physics is moving on. And it's, it's not just that they've you know, sort of trashed space-time. They're finding new structures like yeah. greater permutations and amplitudehedra and EFT hedrons and so forth. Beyond, so, so physicists um, are grateful to Einstein for, for the useful tool of space-time. And now they're going well beyond space-time, but they, whatever they find beyond space-time, they're careful to project, see how it projects back into space-time where we can make our measurements. Okay, two quick things, uh, Don. First of all, you talk about data structure. Just in terms of a simple way to think, think about that, what data structure means, could, could we compare it to a VR headset? Absolutely. Uh, okay. Or a desktop interface, either desktop way. Interface. So, Fine. so you can think of your desktop interface as, as a simple data structure that takes all the, the, the trillions and trillions of voltages and magnetic fields and so forth that are whirling around inside your laptop and, com and converting them into a simple data structure, right. a flat screen, or, or if you have a VR he headset framework, I mean, if yeah. you have a 3D version, probably in a few years we'll all be doing 3D desktops instead of yeah. 2D. Wow. But, but it, it's just a data structure that's, I mean, as complicated as it might seem, it's a dramatic simplification of what's going on inside your computer. And, and so that's the same thing about space-time. Space-time, of course, is very rich and complex, but, but compared to the reality beyond it is trivial. Yeah. And in terms of 10 to the minus 33, so it, it, it is a big number, but as you say, comparatively, compared to how big it could be, it's, 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 yeah, it's not that big. What I find interesting, so that's the Planck scale, isn't it? And yes. so that's Max Planck as well. Just you were talking in terms of that symmetry with the 100 years of Einstein. And Max Planck is the guy who also said, uh, I believe that consciousness is fundamental, which is actually kind of what we're, we're going to sort of move on to later. So there's a nice bit of uh, symmetry there. So is it fair then to say that mm -hmm. space-time is created by, in our case, the human mind? So reality is, is filtered through the, the mind or, or mind, and we experience something that actually isn't there. So space and time actually aren't there. Uh, th th that's right. So there, I would say that their space and time are illusions of our projection. Right. Just, just like, uh, you know, the blue rectangular icon in some sense is, is, doesn't resemble your book in the computer, whatever, whatever it is in the, it doesn't resemble it. What's, and if you took the blue icon as literally the truth, that would be an illusion. That would that would just be an illusion, right? A useful illusion, but nevertheless an illusion. Yeah. Now, to some degree, we can actually intuit this, and I'm interested to what degree you, you agree with this, because I know that you're a 
you know, you've been meditating for, for a few decades, very deeply. And I want to ask you a bit about that, but, you know, as a lot of people in meditative traditions will say, well, actually, yes. Okay. You know, we believe in time. I can go and leave my keys out on, well, as the example I've already given, but also I can go and leave my keys out on uh, the desk by my front door, go out. And when I return, the keys will be in the same place. And that sort of hints that, you know, there is time and obviously I can throw a ball in terms of space. But actually, if we refer directly to our immediate experience rather than, okay, our, our beliefs and interpretations, in our immediate experience, it's always now and it's always here. And experience should trump belief. That, that That's right. So our, our fundamental primary experience is the here and now, and it's always now. I can never do something in the future. I can only do it now. And um, the past is only something that I remember now. Uh, and, and so there is this sense in which the, the now is the fundamental experiential reality. Uh, yeah. As a science, this is a different thing, but as an experiential reality, it's always the now. I've never done anything in the future and I've never done anything in the past. It's always been in the now that I've ever done anything. And, and in the model that we're building of, of consciousness, um, we have this conscious agent model. We model it that way. The mathematics has a a now where the the state of the Markovian dynamics is always changing, but it's always in the now. But the time that we experience, right? So space and time has a time that's tied in physics to a, a notion of entropy, uh, of of increasing disorder with increasing time. Things fall apart as time goes on. <laughs> our bodies <laughs> fall apart. Yeah, you know, our cars get old. Yeah, the sun dies. Food goes off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so things. You know, that's the. You know, so there's this notion of entropic time, and that. What, what's really interesting mathematically is, our theory of conscious agents has a dynamics. So you might say, oh, therefore you've got time. Well, well, we have a, a dynamics. There is a a dynamical parameter, but it's, it, it, there is no increasing entropy. The entropy does not need to increase, but it's a theorem that if you take our Markovian dynamics and do any projection of it, so take this Markov dynamics of consciousness and take a projection where you're losing information about the, the whole thing, the projected dynamics will have increasing entropy and therefore an arrow of time. So my, my take on it is, the arrow of time is not an insight into the nature of reality. It's entirely an artifact of the loss of information in our projection. <laughs> reality, whatever it is, is this timeless dynamics. And because we have only partial information in our projection of that dynamics, we have this entropic arrow of time. So it's entirely an artifact of the projection. You were talking obviously about entropy, about things falling apart and um, bodies, cars, food, whatever it may be. And so everything we ex experience, so all the elements of experience have entropy. So when we look in the mirror, oh goodness, there's some more gray hairs, there's some more crow's feet or whatever it may be. Our sofa, there's a few more scratches from the cat. 
et cetera, et cetera. However, whatever does the experiencing, there is no entropy there. Now, this is a bit of a complex area because I know I was, I was having a little look at consciousness and you know how difficult people find it to even agree what consciousness means. But yeah. one definition, if we, if, if we can just use it just for this example, would be that pure field of subjectivity. And that's why a lot of people would agree with this, that, that that's why we intuit that even though when we look in the mirror, we're like, oh my God, I'm getting older. I'm, I'm in my mid-60s, I'm in my mid-70s. But I feel just the same as I did when I was a young man or, or young woman. And that links to that subjectivity. And, and again, I don't want to dwell too long on this. We might come back to this, but I just wonder what you, what you made of that. Well, yes, that's a very important thing to, to discuss about consciousness. Yes, we do have this feeling that in some sense, there is a fundamental aspect of our consciousness that, that is the same now as it was when I was a child, just that, that, that raw awareness. And for me, the, the thing about consciousness that, that's critical here is that there, maybe a metaphor could, could help. Right. So if you look at your computer screen, say you're watching a movie on your computer screen, you know, you're watching you know, Star, Star Wars or You Star know me Trump well, Tom. Yeah, you know me well. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Right. There, there's, and, and each movie is really you know, fun to watch and absorbing and so forth. But, but you realize, if you think, step back, the, the screen itself that was playing the movie, you're not really aware of the screen when you're playing the movie. That screen is truly remarkable. You could play trillions of different movies on that same screen. It, that screen itself, which doesn't call attention to itself. I mean, I'm paying attention to the, I'm watching Star Trek or I'm watching Star mm -hmm. Wars or whatever the movie might be. I'm not really paying attention to the screen. I'm paying attention to the movie. But when you think about it, it's the screen that, that's very understated that's allowing the whole spectacular thing of the movie that I'm watching to occur. And it could allow for billions of others. And all of a sudden you realize my attention is on a particular movie and I don't pay attention to the, the incredible power of this screen that is there that could play any movie and countless movies. Hmm. And that's the, sort of the shift that you have in meditation I, my life is absorbed in this particular movie. You know, my body, my room, my car, the people around me, a, a movie is happening and I'm, I'm completely absorbed in it. And I don't, I'm unaware of the screen on which that movie is being played. And, and, and that screen is not somehow divorced from me. Hmm. It's not like there's me and then there's the screen. It's like, no, I am, whatever I am is not anything in the movie. It's not my body. It's not my hands. It's, it's, it's I am that potential for infinitely many different movies. And that's sort of the shift that you get in yeah. the spiritual traditions is um, from physicalism, which is being tied to the movie. You know, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm really absorbed in the movie to wait, wait, wait. There's something much more impressive. The, the movie's impressive, absolutely impressive. But there's something that is even much more impressive than the movie. It's the 
capability of showing any movie. Yeah. What is it that can show any possible movie? Well, that's what I am. That's hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. I can't, I am that, and I, I can't know it by like writing equations. I can know it because I am it. So I can just be it. Yeah. I can yeah. be it. But, um, and, and by the way, our theory of consciousness actually has as a mathematical theorem, it's, it's, it's actually a theorem that you can never have a theory of the ultimate consciousness. You can have yeah. theories of projections of consciousness. And so we have all these projected conscious agents and we're fine and we, we can work with those. But our theory says there is this ultimate one consciousness, which I am. And the theory says that, that we are infinitely far away from ever getting there mathematically. It's, it's impossible to get there mathematically. Yeah. That's the, by the way, the power of mathematics is to show its own limitations, right? Yeah. It, it says precisely all scientific theories will always be infinitely far away from a final description of this one conscious screen, the, the, the ultimate one consciousness. So that's why I, I, I pause a little bit. You can, these are not trivial ideas, but the basic idea is what we call space time in the world is just one movie that the yeah. screen of consciousness can play. You are that infinitely potential screen that could play trillions upon trillions of different movies. This is just one. But we're wrapped up in this one movie. We've identified ourselves with a particular object in that particular movie. And the whole spiritual move is to say, no, 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 you're not this little object in this little movie. You are the infinite potential, the screen that could do any movie, you know, infinitely many movies. And you can't understand yourself by thought. But you can understand yourself by just being yourself right and yeah. that's also uh, uh, in some sense a mathematical theorem the, you you the mathematics itself can never do the full description but you are that so in this case subject and object are the same thing the subject yeah. me being aware of myself as consciousness is is this unique situation in which concepts the spiritual traditions will say you have to let go of concepts. Why? Well, because concepts themselves are extremely limited. Hmm. They're going to be part of essentially one movie yeah. you know, uh, set or one movie framework. But you transcend any particular movie framework. So you transcend any particular set of concepts. So the, the concepts that we're using in this particular movie of space and time and people and earth and so forth, they're wonderful for this movie. They're wonderful this for this particular projection um, on our consciousness screen. But if we stay with that, we've missed the infinite potential that we are, that, that transcends that. And so for us, and, and by the way, I, I do this not only as just a person and you know, you know, in spiritual, but also in, in science, to really make progress. To get to really deep ideas, let go of all concepts. Yeah. Literally let go of all concepts. As powerful and as useful as they are, the true intelligence, the infinite intelligence, transcends any concepts. It can then, once you go there, which is what you are, this infinite intelligence, you can then come back and bring back into our little set of concepts here new, new ways of using those concepts that are very, very useful. 
Um, but the concepts themselves can never fully explore something that's infinitely beyond them. So that's the best metaphor I can give to sort of ties the science with the spirituality. But the concepts themselves can never fully explore something that's infinitely beyond them. So that's the best metaphor I can give to sort of ties the science with the spirituality. Okay. That's, um, yeah, that's pretty uh, head challenging. So just a couple of, of, of things then. So first of all, letting go concept. So thinking is limited and the equations you've done hint at this one consciousness, this one being, you talk about conscious agents. So um, what I write in saying, there's almost like portals into this, this deeper being, but even though your equation hints at this deeper being, it can never ever truly capture it. No equation could ever capture it, so, which is kind of hard to get your head around that it can both sort of say that it's there, but at the same time say, but we'll never be able to describe it. That, that's right. And I, I, I can explain actually in an intuitive way why that's the case. So it's okay. The, oh yeah. So, so if we start off, we have this, this definition of a conscious agent. So it has experiences and it, based on its experiences, it affects the experiences of other conscious agents. So there's a mathematics of that. And it turns out when you look at the mathematics, the mathematics tells you that if you have, if you take two conscious agents, then those two conscious agents also satisfy the definition of being a conscious agent. So there is one as, as well, one conscious agent. And so if I, so if I take a million conscious agents, they're also one conscious agent. And if I take, so, so if I have, so suppose I start with just a, um, a number of conscious agents that's the same as the number of the integers, what we call accountable infinity. So agent one, two, three, four, five, up to infinity. So suppose I start with just that number of conscious agents. Well, now, okay, agents one and two, they form an agent. Agents one, two, and three form an agent. Five and six form an agent. In other words, any subset of them is an agent. We call that the power, the set of all subsets is called the power set. So the power set turns out to be a bigger infinity. So the, the integers have what we call the, the lowest level of, of infinity, what they call ALF zero. The power set is ALF one. So that's a bigger infinity. So now there's, there's an ALF one infinity of new conscious agents, but now take their power set. That's ALF two. Now, now take their power set, ALF3. So there's no end to the infinities of conscious agents. And so ultimately, the it is a theorem that there is just one conscious agent. But it's also a theorem that there's no mathematical description of it because you can never get through. This is called Cantor's hierarchy of infinities, ALF0, ALF1. So we can never, it never ends. And so it's, it's a theorem of the theory that there is one. And it's also a theory that it will completely transcend any mathematical description. Yeah. And, and But the power of mathematics is the mathematics tells us where it bows out. <laughs> it tells us that there is one and that no math, no, no finite mathematical description can ever. And that's all that we could ever do is a finite, you know, yeah. no finite mathematical description can ever, can ever do it. In, in fact, even ALF1, ALF2, ALF3, none of those, can, even those infinities can't do it. You've got to go through ALF infinity, and there is no such thing as ALF infinity. You can't get there. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. So. Mind-blowing. 
Yeah, yeah, you could say. I think that was the perfect comment right there. Yeah, yeah. So it's difficult to know where to turn. So we'll just we'll just park that just briefly, uh, and maybe just say say this. So we obviously we talk about ourselves as human beings, and so Don the human is different to Simon the human is different to the listener human, <laughs> but the being aspect actually borrows its being from this one infinite being so actually the being aspect of everyone and everything is shared is that fair yeah that's that is my view and in some sense um don and simon are just different avatars of the one being Um, (laughs) and the avatars really aren't who we are the don avatar isn't really who who i am and the don story you know my parents were such and such i was born so i did that's really if I, if somehow I got hit in the head right now, such that I couldn't remember my, my, my story, you know, who, who yeah. are you? I don't remember. I don't know who my parents are. Yeah. What degree? I don't remember what degrees. In some sense, I would still be me. I, I am not that story. I am the consciousness in this present moment. And so, so, so that the Hoffman thing is just an avatar and, and that avatar is, you know, in some sense, the one consciousness, the one being, is choosing, and this is this is deep and um, transcends yeah. any con- concepts yeah. I've got right now. Yeah, is choosing to look to to explore its potential through these various avatars. There's a Simon avatar, a Hoffman avatar, all these different avatars. You know, <clears throat> you know, there was a Newton avatar, an Einstein avatar. There's all these different avatars that, the, and the one being for some reason explores its potential and by taking on these various avatars and, and letting itself get lost in the avatar yeah. for a while yeah. and then wake up. Somehow it's important to get lost and then to wake up and then get lost and wake up to, to really in some that's what it must be to have self-understanding when you are this Aleph infinity one. Wow. Yeah. We, we talk about know thyself. That's taking it to a whole new level. Um, now, now the the implication of what, what you've just said is profound. So we spoke about, um, flat earth before, and obviously the implications of believing the earth was flat and not questioning that had, you know, ramifications for, for long haul travel and, um, and, uh, you know, a fear about dropping off the end of the earth and perhaps, you know, a lot more than that, but th- those are the most obvious things that spring to mind. But the implications of we are avatars of with the same being, the implications of that. Now that it really is profound. Now, just to slightly backtrack onto the, the space-time thing, because whether it be people not talking about the space-time not being real or people not talking about the hard problem of consciousness and just accepting that, you know, that's the way things are and, and so on and so forth. But at some point, my sense is that people will catch up. And so was it 2013, this, you know, space time is doomed first sort of came out and it will take some time. And I know you went, you told me you went to a conference with a load of physicists and you kept sticking your hand up and going, yeah, but what about the fact that space time has been doomed and no one had heard of it because there are so many branches of, of physics. And then you told me that, really interesting anecdote about 
again, about Einstein back when he won the Nobel Prize. And he's obviously so well known for, correct me if I'm wrong, because physics isn't my strong point, Don, but general relativity and all that stuff. But actually, even though that was in the work he did that got the Nobel Prize, that wasn't the reason he got the Nobel Prize. They kind of skirted over that and didn't pay it much attention. And it wasn't till decades later, people were like, realized how profound that was. And so is it safe to, to assume that then the findings that space-time is doomed, the findings that space-time is an illusion, it's part of our human mind, VR headset, desktop interface. The kernel has been dropped into the ground and it, when it will bud over the next however many years. And then the way people view reality will catch up. And just as it was with general relativity, people will, no, well, space-time, no, it's an illusion. And, and then to take that even further, that also that we share this, this one deep fundamental conscious being that actually this could go mainstream in the not too distant future potentially if we look at what happened with Einstein. That's right. So yeah, when Einstein got the Nobel Prize in, in 1922, the Nobel Committee made it very, very clear it was not for his work on, on space-time, so special and general relativity. They, they didn't, I think they were suspicious of it. Um, and it took a while for it to be accepted. And but but eventually later it was accepted because it you know it really was a, a major advance over Newton's theory of gravity and space, space and time, and it, my take is that right, space time is doomed. You know, came out in two thousand maybe before, but at least two thousand five with David Gross's paper, and in twenty thirteen, what you were referring to was Neymar, Connie Hamed, and and Yaroslav Trinka published something called the Amplitudehedron, which was in some sense a first real deep structure beyond space-time that was actually able to compute scattering amplitudes inside space-time. So it was, the, mm -hmm. it was the first successful foray beyond space-time to find new structures. That was what happened in 2013. Wow. So, But yeah, you're right. Most quantum physicists don't know. They haven't heard about the amplitudehedron. They don't know about this. But I'm quite confident. You know, science is conservative. But it, it, it will progress. It always does. It, it just takes time. Usually the old guard has to die. And it's the younger generation that picks up the new theories and runs with them. That's, so that's what, what happens. And I, I think, it, you know, within 30 years, 40 years, it will be, you know, just, of, of, it would be, of course, you know, space time is mm. fundamental. And I think also um, a generation that's raised spending a fair fraction of their time in v virtual reality is oh, going to yeah. have no trouble with this. In fact, they're going to look back on us as the old fuddy duds who just, yes. how could they, how could they, it's like, we look back, back at the flat earth people, how in the world could they, I mean, I, I, I sort of get, you know, the earth looks a little bit flat, but how could you be so stupid is sort of how we feel about it yeah. now. Yeah. And I think that that's the way it's going to be. You know, they'll, the people who spend their time in VR will look back and go, how in the world could you possibly have taken this as the fundamental reality? That's just so stupid. Yeah. So, so I think, yeah, it'll be accepted and, and we'll actually look like funny duds. Yeah. Okay. So virtual reality, you know, actual virtual reality headsets are, are going to be helping this view of reality to progress. And now just quickly as well. So I touched on the hard problem of consciousness earlier. Now, this is all obviously linked, but again, just to come back to that. So most people assume that there are such things as brains and according to how we've been discussing, no, the brains are how we see something that is infinitely more complex. I remember Bernardo talking about, you know, brains 
how we see our internal experience from a second person point of view. So you look at a brain and it looks like a brain, but my experience of it would be thoughts and feelings and perceptions and all those kind of things. But yet the vast majority of people working in physics are still utterly convinced that conscious experience, the taste of chocolate, the feeling of love, et cetera, et cetera, is created by the brain. Now, mm-hmm. as we've established, that can't be true according to what you're saying. So that's part number one, just briefly on that. And then secondly, when do you predict that will become, you know, again, looked at as fuddy-duddy view? Right. So most of my my friends and colleagues who are studying consciousness and cognitive neuroscience and related fields <clears throat> assume that something inside space-time, like the brain, is the source of consciousness. You have to have the right complicated systems with right integrated information, proper properties or... Uh, you're right, uh, orchestrated collapse of microtubule, quantum state properties, or or, or whatever it might be, um, the, the right global workspace um, state or, or properties. Somehow these functional properties of physical systems give rise to consciousness. And I, I think that, that most of my colleagues think that partly because they don't understand that space-time is doomed. But again, most physicists don't yet understand that space-time is doomed. So I can't, you know, I can't fault my, my no. colleagues in cognitive neuroscience for not knowing that. So, so they, they don't understand that the, the bottom has been cut out from that whole thing. And by the way, you know, last December, the Nobel Prize went to three physicists who, who together did the experiments that really confirmed experimentally that uh, local realism is false. Uh, the, the idea that objects have definite values of properties like position and momentum and spin that exist even if they're not perceived, that, that's, that's local realism. Um, well, that's realism and locality is that the properties have influences that propagate no faster than the speed of light. That's the local locality. Local realism is false. It, it, it just won the Nobel Prize. That's just false. In other words, to put it very, very bluntly, you know, brains are made of neurons, neurons are made of molecules, molecules are made of particles, right? Well, those particles have no definite values of any of their properties when they're not observed. They don't, they don't exist. Neither do the molecules, neither do the brains. Nothing, the, the, the whole reductionist paradigm falls apart. Re- reductionism doesn't work. It, 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 reductionism is dead. And, and so it's also trying to in the other metaphor we use, you know, there's the, the screen and then the movie on the screen. Well, it's like trying to take something in the movie and say that that created the whole screen. Well, no, that's just something in the movie. The screen is something entirely outside the movie and far, in some sense, far deeper than the movie. The movie is just a play of pixels, play of, of, of firing of pixels in, on the screen. The screen is this, you know, infinitely more capacity. So, so we've got the whole thing turned around. You know, we're starting with brains and trying to build up consciousness, and, and it's just the other way around. I think that, again, my generation just has to die. Um, but the next generation or the generation after that, this is a, this is a tough one, so it may take a couple generations, will we'll really wrap themselves around we have to start with a model of consciousness, even though we know we can never get a final model of consciousness. We have to start with whatever model we can get and show how space-time arises and, and then show how brains arise um, from, from that model. Um, I'm working with, uh, I just submitted a proposal 
with Chetan Prakash and um, Shwapon Chaudhapandye, um, <clears throat> he's a physicist, where we're taking our model of consciousness, the conscious agents, and, and proposing specifically how mass, energy, momentum, and spin in space-time arise from the Markovian dynamics of conscious agents. In other words, we, we're, we're now saying here is a map from properties of consciousness to physical properties like spin, momentum, energy, um, and, and, and so forth. But bound particles versus free particles versus confined particles. So we're, we're start, So if that kind of serious, specific, mathematically precise um, correspondence between conscious agent dynamics and physics succeeds in the next few years, then this may happen really quickly. You know, if we can actually, you know, solve problems that the current physics can't, we can, you know, explain, you know, why the fine structure constant in physics is, has the value it has and why it's ubiquitous um, from a theory that's beyond space-time. Um, then I think there'll be, it'll, it'll just be almost overnight. That, that kind of thing could happen overnight. So, so wow. it'll all depend on what kind of successes we have. All you need is one killer app, right? One killer app, and then the thing will take off. So, you know, with with Einstein, um, there there was there were several killer apps with his special theory of relativity and general relativity. But you know, we we found black holes. You find black holes, okay? Well, it doesn't mean that general relativity is is correct, but it sure means you better take it seriously because no other theory predicted black holes. I mean, that that's the one that predicts black holes, and they're there. So so all of a sudden, you know. General relativity has a killer. Of course, the killer app early on was, you know, the bending of light um, when we took pictures of stars close to the sun. I mean, that was already a, a big killer app that, that that general relativity gave us. But so all you need is a big killer app like that, and and then this thing could could take off. So that's what I and my team are focused on right now is trying to get the killer app where people go, okay, we can't do that in space time, but you can do that with conscious agents. Okay. Wow. Maybe we better start studying these conscious agents. And and it makes perfect sense that until there's a killer app, why should people take it seriously? So that's what sure. we're after. The okay. App. Okay. So you talk about killer app. So if this killer app does transpire and then all of a sudden we get it all across the news, you know, okay, listen, guys, breaking news, space and time are an illusion. Now, I, I'm sure you've noticed recently people are sort of fixated to some degree or there's been a bit more attention on the possibility of ufos with you know the the balloons flying over and all that kind of stuff a lot of speculation about that now i don't know about for you but to me um, space and time being an illusion is a bigger deal even than the discovery of ufos i don't know if you would agree with that yeah a lot a lot bigger absolutely yeah, <laughs> yeah. okay and then just quickly as well you mentioned about local realism so you're saying that things don't exist unless they are observed whilst at the same time referencing what we spoke about earlier things aren't what they appear to be anyway and i just want to use this as a springboard into the final bit then don the implications so the implications then if things don't exist in and of themselves until observed that means the stock we put in things is perhaps mm -hmm. a little bit too high you know the the working our butts off to buy the new car, buy the new house. If we understand, well, it's not even there unless you look at it, you know, it sort of is created in the act of perception, then perhaps you wouldn't put quite so much stock in it. And then also 
the implications of which I, we already spoke on earlier, the shared being, because then it becomes less about, and I don't know if you agree with this, less about, um, you know, survival of the fittest, zero sum game, I've got to get one up on you and more about, hmm. no, hang on a sec. First of all, <laughs> I'm just catching myself saying this out loud. First of all, I'm you, you're me, everyone's everyone. Things actually don't exist in and of themselves. We've got our priorities all wrong. We need to rip up the rule book. And the thing that springs to my mind is, you know, the way I sort of see politics, people are obviously left or right or whatever, but it's, there's an element of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic about, about politics because it's working, <laughs> on, it's working on that sort of that, the Titanic is space and time and things mm-hmm. uh, exist and, and you and me, we're separate, right? Whereas if you get this killer app that you spoke about, the Titanic would sink, we'd get a new boat, and the deck chairs would immediately become irrelevant. So just taking everything on board, what I've said, how do you see the implications of all this in terms of the way we live and, and the way we can move forward as, you know, as a species and cooperating with other species and the planet and even space-time? <clears throat> yes. Well, yeah, the way I see it is that it's an illusion that I'm just my body and all the, all the things that we work for, as you say, you know, the, the house, the car being famous, whatever it might be that you're going after, all these things disappear. I mean, and, and it's not just a theory. Everybody, if, if you never know it, you know it the moment before you die. You, you, the moment before you die, you, die you, you suddenly see that all that stuff that you work for, what, what was that all about? That's, that, that's, not, that's not it. That's, You've been missing the point. You've been missing missing the point, and and you walk away from it, and and the the point is is it goes far deeper. It's in some sense we're we're here. We are, as you say, the one. So it's it's not you versus me fighting and competing and so forth. It really ultimately is recognizing that that the person that I injure is myself. Hmm. If I injure somebody else, if I if I if I judge another person. Because they have different politics from me or whatever, badmouth them. I'm really badmouthing myself. If I don't forgive somebody else, I'm not forgiving myself. So, so in some sense, it, 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 I'll put it this way: um, the capitalist framework that we work in is, is what we need when we are selfish. This is what works when we are selfish, and communism does not work. Communism should work, but it doesn't because we are we are under this illusion. Yeah. If, if we really were enlightened, then, then communism would work, but we're not enlightened. And we're, we're still tied to our little avatars and me versus you in, in competition. And so that's why in that's in that framework, communism absolutely is, is a proven failure. <laughs> um, so, so it does have political implications. It, it has personal implications, but it also has implications for how you spend your life. Sure, it's fine to enjoy a nice house and a nice car and so forth. But if that's my identity, and if some sense my self-worth is because my house is better than your house and my car is better than your car, and that's what I, that's what I think I am, that illusion will, you will be dis, disabused of that illusion, if not before, in the moment you really face your own death. You will realize, oh, I really just wasted my life on that. I wasted my life for something that, that, you know, was, 
And I, I've even, I've heard people on their deathbeds, you know, I've heard them say, I seem to have spent my life distracted. This is a quote I heard from one person. I, I, spent, I went through life distracted. Well, I wasn't in the now. I was too busy trying in, to get this car in the future or, or that thing in the future. I was always looking to the future to save me, to, to make me more complete. But I was always also worried that the future is going to kill me because in the future there, there looms death. And so the future is always. So learning to be in the now and to recognize that I'm already this infinite intelligence, this infinite consciousness, that's, that's what I'm here to do is to wake up. I, I'm in, I've, I am that infinite intelligence. I've plunged myself into this particular frame to learn a little bit about myself and to wake up to, to all. This is an incredibly beautiful. The earth is a wonderful, beautiful place. I love, I was just in Yosemite, beautiful trees, Yosemite, the dogwoods, the river. It's incredible. It's beautiful. And it's just one little story of all the infinite stories that I'm, I'm capable of. So, so I'm here to truly enjoy the story, get lost in it, and then wake up and realize as beautiful as this is, this is just barely scratching the surface of what I really am. And yeah. that's really some sense. sense. And, and even, by the way, having wasted my whole life trying to be better than everybody else with my bigger house, my bigger plane, whatever, in some sense, it's not a waste because at the end I wake up and realize, oh, that's, that's not what I am. I'm, I'm infinitely greater than that. Yeah. Okay, last few things, Don. This has been a lot of fun. Fun enough, I um, I had a, a guy who listens to the podcast and messaged me yesterday and um, asked about purpose. And he said, um, he work, I think he's a coach and he works with people of a certain age and middle age I'm talking about. And they said what he notices, there's this really common sense of a lack of purpose around that age. And how can people go about finding that? And had I recorded any conversations about this? And I have. I've recorded some where it talks about on the kind of, okay, I want to find a purpose in my job or whatever. But it seems to me that then the real purpose can't be found on that level. The real purpose is to awake to our true nature and the implications of our true nature. Yeah, exactly right. You, you realize that every possession that you get will be taken from you. Everything. And it could be at a moment's notice. I mean, you could drop dead in five minutes. It, 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 it will be taken from you. And everything that you've done won't be remembered at some point. And who was the richest man on earth in 1897? I don't know. I don't yeah. care. Who, who cares? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. No one cares. Who yeah. are my great-great-grandparents? There were, mm. I, was, I don't know, 16 of them. I can't name a single one of them. If I can't name my own great-great-grandparents, who else knows about them? <laughs> so, so we, we, the things that we take, you know, oh, I'm leave my my legacy, my I'm going to have all these possessions, all my these followers, things that we do, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and 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 we we strut our stuff, and and we're, we 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 fight and so forth. Ultimately, we'll realize, if not before, you you realize, hopefully, at your deathbed, you you realize, whoa. But hopefully you realize before so that you can actually start to live life on purpose as opposed yeah. to just going through the routines of, 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 of the ego, yeah. which is trying to be, the ego is all about me 
not knowing who I am, feeling really inadequate. And so trying to make up for that by having more than you, being better than you, or sometimes by being worse than you. I'm sicker than you. I, my life has been tougher, but I have to be more, more than other people. I have to be special. I'm trying to be special because I don't know that I'm infinite intelligence. I don't know how special I am. I'm, I'm under the illusion that I'm not special. I'm looking for something to make me special in the movie, and I can't. Hmm. All I have to do is wake up and realize, no, I'm the author of this entire movie. And my friend over there that I was just competing with and, and bad-mouthing is, in fact, me, just under a different avatar. Yeah. And, 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 but by the way, uh, in some sense, it's all good. Um, I, I, I think I read C.S. Lewis once where, where I think he, he said that he was in World War I and, and, you know, fought in World War I. And he said in one of his later writings that he had felt that if he had, for example, gone up from one of his trenches and, and faced a German soldier and they both shot each other at the same time and both died, that he, he, his attitude was, I would probably, well, then I'd probably just shake hands with him, laugh, and we'd move on. Right. That was sort of his attitude about it. So, so even in some sense, when you're in a virtual reality game and you get lost in it and you're shooting and so forth, when you take the headset off, you go, oh, and you wake up and go, well, well I wasn't so bad. Yeah. So I was doing some stuff that was, well, I learned something about it. I, I learned something in the game. You know? Okay. Yeah. And that's in some sense, death is taking off the headset. Okay. And, 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 and we'll shake hands with our enemies and the people that we fought with and the people that we badmouth and we'll probably just laugh because it's just me anyway. And like, oh, yeah. wow, that was me. Yeah, yeah. Having a bit of a laugh with myself for, with for, myself. It, for some far more deeply profound meaning. Um, and so you spoke about having a bigger house, bigger car, but really that's all about self-aggrandizement. And you spoke about the ego, right? And it's all about, okay, this view of myself, the story of me. But as you said, stories, concepts, thoughts can never fully describe the one consciousness, the one being. And the same is true of us. So any story that we hold about us, I'm good, I'm bad, you know, I'm guilty, I'm innocent, I'm pure, I'm, you know, anything is inaccurate. A story is just that. It's, it's a, a fiction that can be useful in terms of communicating with other people, but fundamentally any story cannot be true. That's right. Any story is only just a projection of, of the, the deeper reality. And that's why I think many spiritual traditions, what they say is the, the essential move is to learn to let go of all thought, all thought, to sit to have periods of, of absolute silence where you, you do not conceptualize yourself or anything else in any way. And, and when you do that, you do become in contact with this much deeper aliveness, to put it, you, you know, words, of course, fail, but yeah. you come in contact with a much deeper aliveness that transcends any concept. And you realize as, as wonderful and powerful as concepts are, and I love mathematics and I love concepts and, and I use them, um, when you let go of them entirely, don't hold on. And it's hard. I mean, we hold on for dear life, myself included. But when you really do let go, even briefly, you, you enter 
a different realm where you realize there's a, a level of intelligence in life that, that completely transcends anything that could be captured with any particular concepts. And, and, and yet then I grab, go back and grab my concepts, like I'm grabbing a life preserver because I'm not, I'm, I'm afraid. And, and so that, that, uh, that learning to let go of the concepts and, and then eventually realizing that the concepts aren't bad, it's attachment to the concepts. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. To realize concepts are useful tools. Mathematics is a useful tool as long as I'm not addicted to it, as long as I'm willing to step out, to let go of them whenever I need to completely, and then go back and use them as I need them. But but to not be identified with them. That's yeah. not who I am. I'm this much, I'm, I'm this infinite intelligence. Um, even though my IQ might not be very yeah. high, yeah. I, that, that's, that's an, a limitation of my avatar. Yeah, right. of the human side of it, yeah. Of the, of the human side of the avatar. But fundamentally what I am is, is an infinite intelligence. But so is a bunny rabbit, uh, ultimately. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, its IQ may be, <laughs> might be two, but it's, it, but it's, it's be, that's just the avatar. Inf behind that is me or with this infinite intelligence. Yeah. Okay. Right. Very last thing then, Don, because we've, we, we've touched on death. I, I was going to ask you about death, but you've touched on death. Okay. Um, people if they go along with this, then death is not what we imagine it to be. But the final question though is about how, and you touched on letting go of thoughts there. And I know that you've, you know, you've meditated for two decades and I know you started out, it was just started out as a stress reduction tool uh, to help you sleep, but then it, it's gone much deeper to that. And I could tell when you were talking about touching into that, you know, that infinite being, that infinite uh, intelligence, that, that's coming from an experiential place. And so um, just in terms of the how of, of getting in touch with this, to be it rather than to think it, what would your advice be then for people to, to perhaps, uh, apart from being as kind as they can to everyone else, to love thy neighbor, as that wise fellow Jesus said, you know, apart from that, in terms of, okay, let, let's call it a practice, how would you advise people tap into this? Well, what I would suggest is that there are really good spiritual teachers who can 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 give good advice. I can say a little bit, but then I would I'll just mention a couple of spiritual teachers. I, I wouldn't take what I say too seriously because I'm 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 just a scientist that I, I do a little bit of this. But there are some spiritual teachers that I really trust. But what I do is I I, I sit and um, comfortably, and uh, it helps to fill your body. To fill your just to fill your hands, to fill your legs, just to allow attention to go into your body, maybe to allow attention to go into how you breathe. But it, by doing that, you're taking attention away from thoughts. It, it's it's it, it's very difficult to be attending to your body and thinking at the same time. So it, it's just a, a, a easy tool to get you to let to to let go of thoughts and then fight nothing. The key thing is to relax and fight nothing. And, you know, always just gently return back to silence. If thoughts come up, you look at them, you smile at them. You don't, and, and you'll find yourself getting caught with them and, and they're important and, and they'll keep you for 10, 15 minutes and all of a sudden, oh, well, and then you, then you beat yourself up. Oh, I'm stupid. I can't do this thing. So all, all that, you just watch all that and you, and you learn to laugh at it. And, and so, it, but that, but, but I'm still doing that after 20 years. So, it's, it's, you know. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm, you know, a, a spiritual um, slowpoke. <laughs> um, for, but, you know, Rupert Spirer that I had the conversation with, yeah. I mean, he's a wonderful spiritual teacher and Eckhart Tolle. I mean, they're wonderful spiritual teachers and they have wonderful talks. I mean, I listen to Eckhart a lot, for example. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And, and, the, and Rupert, they, they will, they much better than me can give you practical tools and even just listening to them is a meditative thing. Yeah. Right? They're, they're yeah. speaking. I'm speaking as a scientist. I still have a lot of thoughts going on in my head. I may not be bringing people into presence where these guys are actually bringing, they will just by listening to them, they're bringing you into this presence of just being without, without concepts because they're, they're there when they're talking. And so that, that invites you to go there with them. So I, that's, my take is spiritual teachers like Rupert Spira and Eckhart Tolle and others listen to their tapes, spend time with them, and then be very, very kind to yourself. Don't judge yourself in any way. Just sit there, let go of thoughts. And then as they come back, smile, let go again, smile, let go again. And after 20 years, I'm still smiling and letting go. They, they, they don't let go easy. And, and that, that, over time starts to help you not be so judgmental of others and of yourself. I'm very judgmental of myself and, and, and of others. And we see this in our politics in the United States. It's not just, we have different views on these issues. It's, right. it's very personal. Yeah. And, mm. and this helps to let, it's fine to have different issues, different views on issues. It's not fine to vilify other people. Yeah. Um, based on political differences that 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 is very painful to yourself because as jesus said to the extent that you judge others in some sense you're judging yourself don't judge lest you be judged well who you're going to be judging yourself if you judge others harshly then know that that's what you're doing to yourself and you're causing yourself incredible pain that's unnecessary so but to the extent that you forgive yourself then you learn that person whose politics I disagree with completely, I, I can't judge them either. I, 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 they have their views. They are what they are. And learning to not be harsh in judgment of yourself. Or, so that all becomes part of this whole letting. It, you might say, how could letting go of concepts lead to all that? But it does. It leads to just realizing you're not any particular view. And any judgment you have of yourself or others are just judgments they're they're not the truth and ultimately what another person what their limitations are is not what they truly are mm. that's just the limitation of their avatar and that's how the one is learning a little bit more about itself yeah. you may not like that other avatar but that is you learning about yourself in a different form yeah even if it's a politician that you completely dis- dislike, yeah. that's you learning about yourself in a different form. Yeah. Okay. Beautifully put. And, and just a quick addendum: we've mentioned the word, we've mentioned Jesus a couple of times, and uh, we're taking him. I think it's fair to say out of the religious context, without with all the religious trappings. And the, yeah. I'm confident you agree with me. He's a normal guy who just happened to see this clearly, as so yeah. many other people through history, Buddha, whoever it may be, down to some of the people you mentioned. It's just about seeing this thing that science is increasingly pointing towards clearly nothing more than that that's right Um, jesus was infinitely 
intelligent, but so are you. Because we we are all the same being, yeah, yeah. the same the same one. And 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 Jesus spoke it very very clearly. And but I think a lot of it got mistranslated. You know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. It's just a little caveat there. Anyway, right. Well, listen, um, Donald. It's it's so lovely to spend time with you again. And um, so I just am very grateful for your time. I'm very grateful for the work you do. And uh, I hope we get to do it again sometime. It's it's always a pleasure. And I'm very grateful to you. Thank you, Simon. It was a, it was a great pleasure to talk with you. One, wonderful. You directed a wonderful conversation and I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's conversation with Professor Donald Hoffman. I love his work and I'm sharing some of my favorite clips from this episode on my YouTube channel. I'll link to that in the show notes. Also, a reminder that my debut book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself, is available for pre-order now, and I'll link to that too. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.